This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to this week's No No Never podcast. Uh, today... I'm James Bird hosting, and I'm joined by Natalie Bromway. We're going to be discussing the the games over the Christmas period. Uh, so quite a lot to talk about. Obviously, two games to pack in, and there's going to be two games to pack in next week. So let's uh, get straight into it with the the Spurs game. Um, Bromers, what were your overall thoughts on the the Spurs game? Obviously, it was uh, maybe the first time we've been truly outclassed at, at Turf Moor this season. Yeah, it really was. I think going into the game, we were all expecting it to be one of the most difficult fixtures that we've come across. I think Spurs have, have been guilty of a little bit of inconsistency in the early stages by their standards, I, I clarify. Um, they haven't quite carried on, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think from the end of last season when they were pushing Chelsea for the title. Um, but they're still an incredibly class um, side. They are physically very fit. They are tall, strong, athletic. The ball seems to stick to their feet and they're incredibly talented at the same time. So we always knew that that was going to be um, a difficult fixture. But I don't think any of us expected us to be outclassed just as much as we were on the grounds that the usual standard of play by this Burnley side is to play very disciplined and to play very tight, um, strong defensive football and, and for reasons which obviously we're going to discuss in a, in a very short while, that discipline went out of the window very early in the game. So I think for me, the, the poor performance was a combination of our own downfall for some lack of discipline, but also just an inability to cope with an incredibly classy side. Yeah, I think there's talking, obviously talking points in the game right from the off. Um, very early on, Deli Ali was uh, booked for what looked like a bit of a, a rash challenge on, on uh, Taylor. Uh, personally, I thought the booking was the the right decision. It was wasn't a malicious challenge, but it was definitely a clumsy and a, a little bit late. What was your your take on it, Natalie? Because obviously that sort of set the central theme for the game going after that. Set the pace. <laughs> Three minutes in and we're already looking at whether it's a yellow card. Um, um, I can't tell you whether it's a yellow or a red, James, and there's a very good reason for that. And we talk about it week in, week out in this league. Nobody knows anymore what's a yellow and a red because there's an inconsistency among the the officials in the league game after game. And it depends on the player, the circumstances, who you're playing. I've seen those given just a free kick. I've seen them yellows. I've seen them reds. And it doesn't surprise me. Let's get all conspiracy theory now. You know, it's early in the pod. We may as well get it out to start off with. Um, the big teams and the big players and the big England internationals and our future stars of, of the England national team get an unprecedented level of protection from these referees. Um, Deli Ali is one of the most nastiest, dirtiest players I've seen in this league. He's petulant. He is snide he's nasty and he gets protection week in week out we all saw the game the the Spurs game before the Burnley game where he well he went in with a potential career ending tackle and just gets a yellow card he should never have been playing and you could argue Kane as well should never have been playing for the Burnley game they both should have been sent off and serving a three-match ban but they just get yellow cards the game before for, for um tackles which were way worse than the ones that, that they did in the opening stages on Charlie Taylor. So it's just the inconsistency that frustrates me again. Um, there was no way that that referee was going to send off Deli Alley, that, you know, with the massive halo that he's got on his head and, and the future of the England international so early on in that game. Um, 
if we look at it without, so let's let's take it away from from Deli Alley and let's pretend we are at home to Brighton and let's say that it's a Brighton player that makes that challenge. So let's try and make it like for like and see whether that gets sent on because I think my judgment's also being clouded by um, just this frustration with inconsistency and protection for bigger players. So let's try and look at it from a different angle. My head probably tells me um, that I agree with you, James. I think it's probably a yellow card. Um, I'm not entirely sure it is malicious either. I think it's just clumsy. Um, It's not completely studs off the floor, but it's very, very close to it. Um, So I think on balance, the yellow was fair. Um, I'm just frustrated that Deli Ali is just week in, week out, flying in with reckless charge. You know what? He's going to end some of his career soon. It's going to take that. He's going to break somebody's leg. He's just so reckless with his challenges. He just goes in and, and well, you know, let's just hope that he doesn't. But it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I guess my summary of that is that, yes, it probably was a yellow, but I'm just frustrated that we have to sit here and debate whether it's a yellow or a red because we simply just don't know anymore. You know, that's an interesting point. Um that he is maybe a little bit protected, and I think obviously him and Kane were both very fortunate to be to be starting the game, uh, considering the the challenges they put in uh, the, the week before. For me, um, it's a it's a clear yellow. I think um, you know it's ill thought out, but it's just maybe a little bit over enthusiastic rather than malicious. Uh, the problem for me was actually that he sort of seemed displeased with getting a card. I think it's one of those ones that uh, there's no debate really. You know. He, some referees might have sent him off. I, I think that would have been the wrong decision, but um, he, he definitely should have no uh, arguments with a booking. And I think the fact that he, he tries to protest it shows the way that a lot of players um, just don't accept decisions or you know look through their own tinted spectacles when they, they, they think about the challenge they've just put in. Um, well, it, it seems like Ali was obviously adamant he, he wanted to stay in the limelight because then he looks to simulate for, for a penalty. Um, uh, my first thought obviously was clear dive, uh, not a penalty, but as I've seen more of it, that there probably is enough there for it to be a penalty, but it doesn't take away from the fact that th- there's still a you know, significant amount of simulation. Um I've seen a lot of Spurs fans on social media Spurs fans on social media say, Well, you know, this contact is entitled to go down, but that shouldn't be the way it works. And in my mind I think you should be able to uh, both get a penalty awarded for a foul as well as a a booking for a simulation, and as I've said many times on the podcast before, personally, I'd uh, I'd introduce red cards for for simulation uh, for next season because it really does need to be stamped out of the game. Um, Problems. What were your initial thoughts on on, on the fall, uh, as we'll try and call it? You put an unbiased slant on it, um, <laughs> both sort of real time, and then when you you've seen it again after the fact, because. Um, it was probably a turning point in the game, even though ultimately we're outclassed and I don't think it's actually changed the result. Yeah. Um, same as you, real time. Because of the angle I sit at the turf, um, I was my vision was obscured slightly. Um, so I wasn't I was on the alley side, not on the Kevin Long side, if that makes sense. Um so when I first looked at it in real time, it looked like a blatant dive and I was absolutely outraged as you tend to be because it's so early on in the game and it's there's that sense of injustice that's just bubbling along this season consistently. Um, so I, I was outraged. Somebody um, very kindly sent me um, a link of it very, very early on in the game. By, I think by about 10 minutes on the clock, I'd already seen it um, and it did it did look to me like a penalty. Um I think, and this is this sounds really harsh to say this, because especially as, as I don't think he had a particularly good game either. Um, I think it was naive by Kevin Long. I think he 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 leaves his wrong foot in there um, and just invites the dive. And in the current climate, Premier League forwards will try and get a penalty in the box every single time. I voiced my frustrations on this before. 2017-2018 season is going to be absolutely remembered for the season where centre forwards just basically stopped trying to create chances in the box. We're in an age now where players don't get into the box and they're not looking at the goal. You you look at it in all the replays and you look at the, you know, and you're watching match the day or all the sky replays of the games, you know, look at the forwards, the the heads aren't up in the box. They're not looking for the best pass. They're not looking to shoot at goal. They're looking at the defender and inviting him to make the the tackle so they can simulate and dive over his foot, um, you know, get themselves a bit of contact and get the penalty. And it's destroying the entertainment factor of the game. And defenders must just be sat there scratching their heads at the moment because they just don't know what they're supposed to do. And it's being made worse by the fact that 
pundits and commentators, the so-called experts who are, you know, in the, the big, big time in the national media are agreeing with it. And they're just saying, well, yeah, it's, it's definitely a penalty. It's a, this contact. No. And I don't believe that. And I don't believe that contact equals penalty. And I've never believed that. And it feels like it's an excuse to protect the players and the big sides who, let's be honest, lie in the pockets of the pundits and the commentators because without these big national media outlets and without the Premier League having the money that they have, then they wouldn't be in a job. So, you know, it's very it's very lazy um, to just justify all the time because, you know, I was watching a match of the day last night and um, – no, sorry, it wasn't match the day last night. It was on the Newcastle game, Newcastle City game last night. And one of the Newcastle players dived for a penalty and quite rightly got booked for it. But what he dived for, we have seen consistently this season, bigger top six players do exactly the same, get the penalty. And these so-called experts, commentators, pundits sat on national TV claiming, oh no, that's definitely a penalty. He's got every right to go for that. It's clever play, which is one of the, just the phrases that irritates the nothing out of me. Um, so I think, I think my vision, my, sorry, I think my opinion at the moment is very skewered because I'm frustrated with the trend in this league for players just to go down and to just look for the penalty. And they are tripping over their own feet and they know they're trained how to make it look like it's a, it's, it's contact. So they're entitled to go down. Um, and, and I think that's what it was. And, and to have that so early on, it clearly affected the Burnley players because I thought they lacked, they lost all their discipline with the sense of injustice from that early penalty. Um, and I think they, and I think Kevin Long was also very naive. We, we've seen it with Tarkovsky as well this season. He's conceded, I think, what two, maybe three penalties now um, from again that slightly naive level of play where you invite um, the simulators to, to um, try and get themselves those penalties. So um, yeah, I guess summary of that, James, just to, to wrap up where I was. Yes, probably a penalty. Should it be a penalty? No. Very thorough assessment there. Um, no, I think definitely it's one that's very disappointing that uh, they've not gone back and looked at and and, and judged him to have uh, to have simulated there. I, I think probably enough contact for a penalty, as you said, naive by Kevin Long to to put himself in that position. But um, regardless of whether it's a penalty or not, you shouldn't have players simulating like that. Uh, someone compared it to an incident earlier in the day. Uh, where Jay Rodriguez was fouled but didn't go down and uh, and didn't get anything. I think that's on the referees. That's not on uh, a player not diving. That's on a, a referee not spotting something he's, you know, paid reasonably well to, to spot. And I think we need to, you know, the sooner we can have video reviews and uh, video refs, someone who can step straight in and say, yeah, that's a, that's a penalty or that's not a penalty, that's a dive, uh, the better. So I think it'll be better for the game as a whole. Uh, obviously, it was given as a penalty and Harry Kane put the penalty away. First of three goals on the day and he, he could have had more. Obviously, since then, on uh, on Boxing Days, he added another hat-trick to, to beat Alan Shearer's record for most goals in a calendar year in the Premier League. Um, obviously, he's an incredibly special player. And uh, <laughs> I saw a tweet that tickled me the other day um, saying, when you see the way Harry Kane's playing, the form he's in, you do wonder how he's going to manage to bring his form down to the required level for the World Cup in Russia. Um, I think at the moment, arguably the, the best English striker of uh, my lifetime, I think, up there with you know the likes of Shearer and, and Owen for that, that little period where he was uh, truly fantastic. Promise, what, what did you think watching him? He just looks like he's going to score every time he, he gets the ball, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He's phenomenal, isn't he? He's, uh, it's really, he's like the the saint to, to Deli Ali's devil, isn't he? I think it's it's very difficult because I'm I'm very anti Deli Ali at the moment. And I think he's very much spoiling his brand. He seems to be very lofty on this perch that he's created for himself. And it's actually making me um, very down on this Spurs side. So let's let's park Deli Ali for a moment because I'm, I'm, I don't want my, my vision to be clouded sorry, my judgment to be clouded by his petulance at the moment. So I'm going to take him out of the side. Um, it's it's hard not to absolutely love this Spurs side, isn't it? it he, they are, 
they're just incredible. And, and Harry Kane epitomizes everything that they've built for me. Um, he is, in my opinion, the one of the top three um, players in the world at the moment. And I think when, when Messi and Ronaldo retire, I think he, he easily can um, step up there and be truly world-class. If he goes and has a good World Cup, um, I genuinely believe that he could... Spurs could lose him to the likes of Barca. Um, he is that good. And I find it quite interesting as well that um, there is, there's quite a strict wage structure, isn't there, at Spurs? And actually, both Deli Ali and Harry Kane are not earning that much. Now, I say not earning that much. I'm very aware that in line with us mere mortals' salaries, it's an extortionate amount of money. But there are... Premier League players who don't play week in, week out, who spend most of the season bench warming, who get paid more than double what Harry Kane gets paid. Um, so he's clearly enjoying his football and he's, he's clearly very down to earth and very humble in, in what he's doing and, and how much he loves what he's doing because he's still there and he's he's showing no signs of grumbling or wanting to leave, is he? He's, he's working hard for his team. Um, and it, it's just, it's incredible to see. For me, that Spurs side, less Deli Alley adjust everything that I want the Premier League to be and everything that I want the England national team to be as well. Um, it's just it's just a joy to watch. And like I say, it's, it's always difficult when you're on the, the bad side of it. And I think my only bitterness from the game um, was because of the penalty incident. If you take that away, it would be very hard to come away from that ground and feel anything other than applause for just oh well <laughs> you know they're an, they're an incredibly good side we just clap and move on yeah no I thought they were sensational I'm actually going to co- talk a little bit more about Kane because I just want to say how, how good all round the, the goals were as well um, I think he could have had more chan- uh, more goals in the first half I thought actually he had a poor first half on, on balance with the chances he missed um, but that second goal he's just left in acres of space and, and at first when I saw it, see him collect the pass, I mean, he, how's he not been offside? But you see the replay back, and he's played the line just absolutely perfectly. Um, and I'm going to come on to something in a minute because I think the gap we left in was, you know, criminal. Um, and then the third goal, initial thoughts again. I thought he'd fouled uh, Good, uh, Goodmanson. He, he looked like he jumped in at him. Uh, but when you see the replay, he just wins the ball so well. Um, and it's the kind of challenge you don't see many strikers capable of putting in it's not a traditional strikers challenge it's you know precise he gets the ball and then he picks himself straight back up and he's running on and he's ready to receive the ball and obviously he just slots it away and leaves port with absolutely uh, no hope just you know two fantastic goals that um, he sort of created for himself um, and an absolute joy to watch so hopefully he continues having a great season to be ready for the World Cup for England but um, if he ever Bastard players again, sort of FA Cup. He can, he could have an off day. That would be much appreciated. Yeah, and actually, also, I have, I have met him before, and he is compared to most Premier League footballers, uh, very humble, which is good to good to see. Yeah, he looks it, doesn't he? I think he's, he's, a lot of the things that you see in his private life as well, I think he's, you know, he's still married to the girl that he, he met at school. They've been together since they were 15. They've, they lead quite a, a non-starry lifestyle. And, you know, it just goes to show really that you can have an absolute superstar Premier League player who has all of the luxuries that come with the lifestyle that they've got who can still stay down to earth. And it's it's completely the opposite from the absolute divas who just, you know, grow up wanting to be, wanting the money and the glory and aren't prepared to graft, is it? He's prepared to earn every penny that he gets and he's prepared to be grateful for every single bit of opportunity it gives him. It's nice to see. It is indeed. So just to move on from uh, Kane, but staying with his second goal, as I said, left a massive gap. Obviously, James Tarkovsky was suspended slash injured, might have missed the game anyway after having uh, hand surgery. Um, how big a miss was Tarkovsky in that Spurs game? Um, um, this is quite hard to analyse, really, just because of the standard of the opposition. Um, I, I'd, you know, you're tempted to say, oh, well, maybe, and I've seen a lot of people tweet this, that oh, Tark- Tarkovsky wouldn't have conceded that early penalty because, you know, he would have been alive to what Ali was going to do and he wouldn't have been as naive as long. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. I think that and somebody's going to have to correct me on this. I can't remember whether it's two or three penalties Tarkovsky's conceded this season. Um, but I thought all three of them were very naive from Tarkovsky. And we were saying that way before Kevin Long came into the side, that he's showing um, a lack of experience that maybe Ben Mee and, and um, Michael Keane had 
last season and a bit of um, awareness of what strikers are going to do. So I'm not going to sit here and say that we wouldn't have conceded that goal with Tarkovsky in the side because there's every chance we would have done. Um, I thought Kevin Long had a really poor game on against Spurs. Um, I think he looked completely out of depth. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced whether or not that was his own ability or whether or not it's just the standard of the opposition. It's really, it's really difficult to assess. I think in real time at the game, um, I thought that he was really poor. And I, I remember I did tweet and said I didn't think he was good enough and we, we genuinely need to start looking for another centre-half as backup. That said, um, I thought that he was much more improved in the United game. And I don't want to dwell too much on the United game because we'll come on to talk about that later. But certainly for the first half, he was man of the match for me. So um, I'm going to park Kevin Long's ability and assess it in a few more games because I'm not entirely convinced. Yes, my summary is, yes, he had a poor game and Tarkovsky was massively missed. However, he did a good job against United. So let's park that one for a few games and let's just see how he gets on. Yeah, I think it, it was a game that he'd be bitterly disappointed with, but he did bounce back um, the, the right way at United, I think, and obviously we'll come on to United pretty soon. Um, along the same lines, generally, we just work at the races at all against Spurs. It, is there any area of the game that you particularly thought was where we uh, lost out majorly to Spurs, Bromers? Um, well, I think we've already touched on this. We were just outclassed, weren't we? Sometimes you come across a better side and there's nothing you can do about it. The biggest disappointment for me is what I touched on early on in this podcast is a lack of discipline. We've talked before in previous podcasts about the Burnley blueprint for winning games. We like to stay tight. We like to keep it nil-nil as long as possible. We like to edge ourselves ahead and then we're very, very difficult to beat. If you let Burnley score first, you will struggle to break us down and you probably won't win the game. I'm concerned about Burnley's plan B and the plan B being what happens when we go a goal down and I think we are not the same side when we have to fight back and try and get back into the game after going a goal down. The loss of a goal so early on meant that we had to change our entire game plan for most of the game and we just looked like we didn't know what to do. It was almost like the players lost their structure, they lost their discipline. Now add on to that, there was a clear sense of injustice from the way that the penalty was won and there were some players who just were having some very ill-disciplined personal performances and the team as a unit just wasn't playing very well together. You know, Stephen Defoe got booked for a, um, a blatant, he just took Deli Alley down and it was so obvious that he was just annoyed at him um, and he was just waiting for the opportunity to take him down. And that's the kind of, of behaviour that I'm talking about here. So I think as a, as, as a general game goes, you just chalk it off as well. They're a fantastic side. There's nothing that you can do. You're not going to win every game um, in a season. So, you know, what, what do you do about it? But for me, I think... I'm disappointed and I think Dutch will dis be disappointed with just the lack of discipline. And I think that's why we ended up losing 3-0. I think I think we we could if we hadn't have conceded that early penalty, I think we would have still lost the game, but it could have just been 1-0, 2-0. But like like you said at the beginning, um, James, with with the way we played in the first half, especially, it could have easily been five or six nil. Um, because it was really difficult. So that's, that's, I think, to me, the only problem. Um, and it's quite uncharacteristic from this Burnley side and it's quite uncharacteristic from a Dutch side. So I'm not going to dwell on it. I think you just write it off as a bad day at the office and um, as we're going to come on to, as as is shown, they bounce back. The, the resilience is unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, let's see where we are. Well, we'll, we'll put that disappointing Spurs game behind us and uh, move on to a. <laughs> I did say to someone after the, the Spurs game, um, hopefully we have a really good game against United so that there's a, a real positivity to the uh, to the next podcast. And lo and behold, we did. Um, I'm going to start by just personally talking about my own victory from this game. Little did I know, Bet365, other bookmakers are available. Please bet responsibly. Pay out at 2-0 if you back a team to win. I saw Burnley at 14-1 to and thought, you know what, that's worth a quid. But I also had money on Harry Kane to, to bag a hat-trick on Boxing Day. And when that came in, I thought, getting a bit near a kick-off, getting a little bit cocky, as you do, that positivity just brimming over. I thought, you know what, Burnley are definitely going to win. So I'll have to make sure I've got at least a fiver on. So I upped it to a fiver. We go 2-0 up. And then I say, oh, it's paid out. What's going on here? That's when I found out about the promotion. And then obviously we go on to draw. So thanks, Bet365, for all the money that ultimately I didn't get the bet right. But great news 
So we'll move on now to the actual game. Um, I was out when it started, so I wasn't watching. But I turned on 5 Live just as the free kick dropped into the box and Ashley Barnes absolutely hammered it past uh, De Gea. Dream start, obviously, uh, to, to get a goal so early at Old Trafford and immediately put United on the back foot. Uh, Dash, after the game, talked quite a bit about how he felt that if Barnes hadn't scored, that there was a definite penalty in there. Uh, Natalie, do you think Barnes was being fouled? Because it, it looked as though the defender was absolutely all over him. Um, but despite that, he managed to obviously control the ball and uh, put it away. Um, and do you know what? I'm not sure. I've seen quite a few angles of this, and in real time, I didn't think it was. And since I've I've heard Deitch say that he, you know he he was he, you know luckily it went in, otherwise he would have wanted a penalty. I don't. I'm not entirely sure. I know where where it is. Am I being really dim here? I keep. I've seen a few replays, and I can't see where he thinks the penalty is. Is he maybe just having a dig at the fact that there's a little bit of contact, so that contact equals penalty because that's what we keep hearing every time we concede one. I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. Um, as it, you know, as it stands, we, we got the goal anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But uh, it would have been an interesting conversation on the podcast, wouldn't it? If, we, if it, the goal hadn't have gone in and we hadn't have got the penalty, and uh, we'd have been talking about a sense of injustice again. But um, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. But again, that that probably sits with my general consensus as to what's a penalty and what's not a penalty this season to be honest uh, I'll perhaps say I think you might want to go rewatch it because he's been manhandled quite quite severely but um, oh is it yeah manages to I've only seen a couple of replays manages to, to put it away um, so before we come on to talking about the second goal I just want to talk about uh, Jeff Hendrick he, he wins the free kick uh, for that first goal but beyond that I can't really remember seeing him do much of anything Um He's, he's not been playing badly, but he's just not been playing well. He's just sort of been an automatic or, you know, if you were to give player ratings, a five or a six, just he was there. He didn't make a mistake, but he didn't produce. Is this sort of form from Hendrick a concern? Because obviously the way we play and with the injuries we've had recently, I don't think we can really afford to have passengers in the team. No, we can't. Um, I've been quite vocal about my support of Jeff Hendrick recently. Um, he's he's essentially being asked to play in that number 10 role. Um, he's playing far too far forward. And a lot of this is just down to the tactics that Deitch is using. And and it's clear that, that Deitch has put him in that role and it just doesn't suit him. Um, and I kind of feel for the guy, to be honest, because I don't, I think he's in no man's land and he's, it's not the role that he's used to playing. And it's not a role that I think he can play very well. Now I had, um, I had a, de- a debate about this with uh, Chris Borden on Twitter the other day. Now, Chris's view very much is that he does have the capabilities to play that role, but he's underperforming. And his view is that he shouldn't even be in the side. He should be dropped. And I, I, I don't think I share that view, to be honest. I, to me, it just feels like he's playing him in completely the wrong role. Um, you're right, though, James. The, the problem is, is that Deitch likes um, flexibility with his players and he likes them to be able to adapt to different roles when it's needed. So he is a player that's vulnerable because if he can't adapt to a different role when it's needed in the squad, then he could find himself um, out of the game. But the, the, the biggest problem that you're facing is, is who does he replace him with? If he's playing that far, far forward, you know, I, I don't... I wouldn't want to play Barnes there in the full game. I know some people have, have, have advocated that. And at the moment, we can't do that because we've got Wood missing and we need Barnes up front. Um, but there isn't really anybody else in the squad other than Hendrick who could play that far forward. I, I think personally, Defoe is probably the... Uh, the, the, the yeah, he's the obvious one. And, and I'd, play, I'd play Hendrick back with Cork and play Defoe in that role. Or potentially Arfield, because I think Arfield earlier in the season when he's playing that role... Um, a, yeah, he did well, games. didn't he? Um, I'm not sure I would swap Defoe around at all. Just because Defoe and Cork at the moment are playing so, so well, um, I wouldn't want to necessarily break up that partnership. But you're right, Defoe's the only one that, that could play it. I just don't... I'd prefer to keep Cork and Defoe playing together as the way that they are and just leave Hendrick up front. I don't know. It's a tricky one. Yeah, personally, I'd be tempted to... to maybe play someone uh, different out wide and, and give Arfield a, a couple of games there just to just to see if he can spark a change in, in Hendrick's fortunes because um, he hasn't hasn't really been um, the player we know he can be over the last couple of games. Uh, who do we play out wide though, James? If you, if you, if you put um, Arfield in the middle, who do you play on the left wing? Potentially play Narky Wells or, or uh, John Walters oh, yeah, or 
Um, one of those sort of options. Walters play on the left. I thought it was well, right. So. You, you put him on the right and you play Goodmanson on the left. To be honest, you, you're playing Goodmanson on his uh, weak foot on the right anyway. You, you're expecting him to cut back yeah, in. So, uh, changing that up and putting mm-hmm. Goodmanson on the left and letting him, you know, play on his natural side uh, might not be the worst idea. Um, just to move on to the second goal then, the, the the free kick. Before we just get into the free kick, I just want to talk about the challenge. I thought that was easily the worst worst challenge in the game. And considering how many bookings they were and how card happy the referee was, I think Ashley Young's actually lucky that it, it wasn't a red card because the, the referee was incredibly card happy. And I did, did think it was a, a really bad challenge. Um, to go on to the actual free kick itself, from that sort of range, you typically wouldn't expect anyone to score uh, against De Gea, who's, you could make the case for being the best goalkeeper in the world at the moment. Um, could Defoe have hit that any better? I mean, that is absolutely top bin, right in the corner. De Gea at full stretch just couldn't get there. I mean, what were your thoughts when you, you saw that go in, Natalie? Because to me, that's going to be the goal of the season. There's not going to be something that's going to come close to it for us. No, there isn't. And the answer to your question is absolutely no. He could not have hit it any better. He couldn't have got it any closer to that top corner if he'd have tried. Um, now, De Gea has, has not conceded a, a goal outside of the penalty box all season. And I think the stat that I saw is that there have been 32 attempts on his goal this season from outside of the box. And he has saved every single one of them. And that's the first one that he's conceded. Um, I mean, you know, he's a great goalkeeper. He gets his positioning right and he gets, you know, he goes the right side and he almost gets to it. That's how good he is. But it's just even better a free kick that there's just no saving it. And I thought it was absolutely sublime. I think we were concerned when Brady got injured that we would struggle on set pieces and we didn't have um, as natural um, a free kick specialist as Brady. But, you know, <laughs> the four steps up and says, hang on a minute, I've got this, boys. I've got it covered. But, yeah, it was a fantastic strike. And, and to score that Old Trafford must have just been, to go 2-0 up as well, must have just been some moment for him. Yeah, this actually um, comes back to something I think I said a little while ago about Brady taking free kicks and that I felt he was hogging the set pieces a little bit and uh, you know we had someone who's more capable I think from distance uh, when it comes to free kicks into four and I think this almost you know shows that it would have been nicer if we'd maybe been splitting up who was uh, taking the free kicks because Defoe's got a hell of a free kick on him as well and he's shown that there by you know, scoring what is definitely going to be goal of the season. Um, and as you said, that was the first time De Gea has been beaten from outside his box this season. I think it was 32 previous attempts. Uh, saved every single one and uh, he wasn't getting close to that. Um, I think you could hit that at him a hundred times he might save it once. Uh, that's just how good it was. Um, second half, obviously, Man United came back out, really firing, looking like they, they wanted to try and uh, win the game. Two changes at half-time, um, which shows that obviously Mourinho wasn't happy with the way they played in the first half. Uh, the goals, though, I think the first one's incredibly scrappy, just like sort of around in the box. And it's one that Burnley normally uh, get away. And I think some of the defence might be a little bit disappointed that we didn't manage to get a clearance on that. Natalie, what did you think of it? Yep, completely agree. I think it was a disappointing goal to concede. I actually thought both were a little bit scrappy, to be honest, but the first one especially, um, they just switched off for a, for a moment. And you go 2-0 da- sorry, you go two nil up away at Old Trafford, you, you're naive if you think that they're not going to come at you with absolutely everything in the second half. And let's not forget that you, you know United are still an incredibly good side. They are second in the league. They're going to win the best of the rest. Um, it's skewed a little bit by just how well City are doing this season, but United aren't a, a poor team. They've got some world class there, so they aren't going to give up um, points at home, especially against um, a side who they perceive to be one of the weaker sides in the division. There's no way on God's earth that they're going to give that up without a fight, and 45 minutes is a long time in football. Um, one of the things I've said to a few fans who have expressed some disappointment that we threw away a two-goal lead is that, you know, two-goal advantage is nothing in the Premier League. When we were in the Championship, especially around the promotion year, you go 2-0 up and that's it, job done. Teams very rarely come back from 2-0. Um, the Premier League, that's nothing. You know, look at, was it the West Ham 
Bournemouth game on Boxing Day that ended up 3-3 and they're two sides who are struggling at the bottom. So there's just no way that you can ever expect to, to relax. And I think sometimes this Burnley side still has the remnants of a championship mentality and that once they do go 2-0 up, they think that the job's done and they just back off a little bit and they just try and defend a two-goal lead. And you can't you can't do that in this league, especially against a side like United. So um yeah, scrappy goal to concede, and and for me, as soon as as soon as they scored that first goal, I absolutely knew that we were going to get a minimum um, a point minimum from this game. We were just very lucky, I think, that the second that we managed to keep them at two one for as long as we did. Otherwise, we could very well have lost that game. They are uh, they are that good. Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting that I actually thought we'd still hold on because um, they had that little bit of pressure after the goal, but then we seemed to to get back in control of it. It was only later on that we sort of let them back in again which was, I think was a little bit disappointing it, it was very strange to come away from a, a game away at Old Trafford being a little bit disappointed to have only uh, got a point out of it considering where we'd been in the game but um, something I just want to touch on before we go on to the second goal uh, was Dash's substitution again bringing DeFore off for a, an extra striker um, to me just didn't feel like the right decision the way the game was going the way the, how card happy the referee was I thought um, Barnes was a real risk of getting sent off um, despite actually being one I think of his less physical games um, just because the referee was so quick to get his cards out and there was a few occasions where he looked like he well handled the ball but whether it was deliberate or whether it was a, an instinct to not get hit in the face is uh, up for debate but I think with the way the referee was handing cards out, it was a real risk that he could have been sent off. Did you think it was strange to bring Defoe off or did you think his game had been run at that point? I can see both sides of it, to be honest. It's disappointing from a fan perspective that we see him go off because Burnley fans just want to see Defoe play 90 minutes of every single game because he's one of the best players we've ever seen, if not the best player we've ever seen in a Burnley shirt and he's just incredible. Um, so it's disappointing from that perspective, from an entertainment perspective. But I, th- I can't help but feel that at the time it went off, the game had changed a little bit and we were having to play... No, mind you, I was just about to say we were having to play a little bit more defensive to counteract this renewed um, United attack. But I think Defoe, one of Defoe's biggest strengths this season is his improvement in defence. He does get back and there's been often, there's many a time this season where he's really helped us out at the back and made some important clearances. Um, Dyche likes to protect Defoe a little bit, doesn't he? I think, you know, he does put a shift in in the game these days. So perhaps it was just temporary, number one, because of the, the cards that are the flying around, um, and number two, from a fitness perspective, um, you know, Defoe is a key key member of our squad. So I, I guess my heart's telling me that it was the wrong substitution, but that's a very selfish perspective because I want to see him play all the time. But my head probably agrees with Dyche and thinks it was the right thing to do at the time. Interesting. I, I personally, I would have left before and I would have been taking Barnes off for an extra striker and uh, and maybe bringing Hendrick off for, for someone else to pat the midfield a little bit. Um, but I'm not Sean Dash and I didn't get a point away at Old Trafford. So, uh, I mean, take that with a massive pinch of salt. Um, the second goal. Now, in the build-up to ALC, it comes from a free kick. I think Volks is fouled uh, before the free kick's given. And... Um, personally I think you know when you then look at the goal after it's a disappointing one to concede a little bit sloppy and maybe we could have done more to, to get it clear but ultimately it comes back to I don't think it was a free kick in the first place um, and it, it lose the two points to that goal rather than say um, the one beforehand where Nick Port makes a fantastic save and, and Kevin Long has to clear um, I think lose a bit of a bit of taste did you think folks was fouled in the build up there Brommers or yes yeah, yeah I do I agree with Darch and I agree with you. I don't, I'm not really sure what else he's supposed to do there. Um, it, it's a very difficult um, position for him to be in. And it's just, it, it is hard, isn't it, to to not feel a sense of injustice. And it's, you know, once again, the big teams get the, the rub of the green from the referee that leads to the free kick that then leads to them saving some face at Old Trafford. Although Marino still managed to have a bit of a whinge, didn't he, about how, his, uh, how unjust it was and how his spending spree hasn't been enough because it's still an embarrassing result to him to, to only draw at home to, to Burnley. Um, it, it's diff- You've got to try and 
look at this objectively, especially when we're analysing games the level that we do. Um, it's very easy as a fan to to just lump all of these incidents together and get very um, on one about the sense of injustice and the the number of decisions that go against us. Is that you know away at Brighton? Does that foul get given to lead to a Brighton equaliser? No, it doesn't. You know, it, it's it's not sensationalism. I don't think to um, voice some frustration of the different set of rules that apply to the top six that, that apply to the rest of the league. And I think this season, more than ever, it's becoming more and more apparent. And I don't know if that's a combination of what we perceive to be some pretty poor level of refereeing anyway, or just the fact that we're coming into a World Cup year, or just the dominance that um, some of the media outlets are having on this league. But there, there definitely does seem to be um, a separate set of rules applied to the top six. So, yes, disappointed that that it was given. I don't think it was, it was um, a free kick, but it was a great strike. So, you know, you've got to prepare yourself for the fact that you're going to face... Um, a United side at Old Trafford absolutely piling the pressure on you to try and get something out of a game and to save face. And and you know what? Let's take the positives from this. We managed to ride it out long enough that we managed to get a point. And we could have easily shown some lacking in discipline and, and, and conceded all three there. So let's take the positives from it. We did really well to keep that point, I think. Yeah, and no, obviously to, to get a point away at Man United, it's a, a big point, whatever way you look at how the game unfolded. Um, as we said, maybe a little bit disappointed we, we couldn't get a better clearance on that chance uh, before Lingard uh, got to it. But I thought Lingard had a, a great second half. And to be honest, on that evidence, it's uh, you've got to ask questions of why he wasn't starting. Just to touch on what you were saying about uh, Mourinho complaining about the transfer window there. I just want to put a special mention in that the Manchester Evening News as uh, Manchester United editor, uh, Samuel Lookhurst, who seems to have not responded to it on Twitter, but he originally complained that um, Mourinho was right. You, you can see that he's, you know, his comments are coming. United have underinvested and, uh, you know, he's got a lot of deadwood that he should be getting rid of. Um, someone called uh, Kipax Corner on Twitter kindly pointed out Samuel's position uh, on deadline day, where he tweeted, now deadline day is over, predictions one, Man United, two, Man City, three, Chelsea, four, Liverpool. He said, would have had City down as first if they got Sanchez. United had a good balance despite failure to get fourth player and squad depth is sound. MUFC probably had best window from top six, strengthened the first 11, whereas most of the rivals didn't. Much better prepared with Mourinho. So, hell of a U-turn there from Sam to agree with the uh, special one. But it's interesting to see how maybe people who uh, spend a lot of time with Mourinho are sort of coming under his way of thinking. Uh, he's got a little bit, I think, of a sphere of influence and people who uh, see him quite a lot. And it looks like he's managing to bring people around to the thought that he's underinvested, despite the fact he has spent a phenomenal amount of money. Um, also remembering that I think Burnley have spent 144 million in their entire existence. Um, seems a little bit of a strange time to bring it up when you've just drawn at home against uh, the Premier League's bottom six budgeted side um, when you've spent such phenomenal amounts. Uh, very, very interesting. And I, I think that's that outburst is sort of the beginning of the end maybe of Mourinho at Man United. So I'm not sure how much longer we're going to have to put up with his uh, components. That's a really good point, is that, James? I'm really glad you brought that up. I was going to uh, nudge about that and see whether we could chat about it. He is the absolute master of deflection, isn't he? And he always has been. The problem is, is I think people are seeing right through him these days. And one of the problems that he's facing is that there is um, a bit of a burn loving going on this season, very similar, although not on the same level, very similar to, to the Leicester uh, success story a few years ago in that um, as much as there is a dominance for the top six, they do like an underdog story. So when he starts coming out and, and deflecting against a poor... You know, United performance and starts whinging that he's, he's not spent enough money. I think people are losing patience with him, and I, I agree with you. He sounds like a man under in, in, extreme impre- sorry extreme pressure, and I just don't think he's I just don't think he's the right man for that role. No, I think he's uh, lo- losing his touch, uh, maybe a little bit. Um, just before we do talk about a little bit of the media with Burnley, just want to finish with the Man United game about talking about. Nick Pope, uh, and a special mention for Kevin Long, actually. After Kevin Long maybe didn't have his best game against Spurs, I thought he was absolutely fantastic against United. And that just needs mentioning uh, just to show how he bounced back. And I think on the whole, he has been pretty good when he's been called upon. Um, 
you know, filling in the, the dash way, knowing the system. But uh, the biggest mention to me has to go to Nick Pope. I thought Man United put a lot of crosses into the box during the game and Nick Pope was there for every single one collecting them and obviously he made the fantastic save from Lingard uh, to, to keep us in the lead at the time. What did you think about Pope? Just another fantastic performance from him. Incredible. I'm going to be bold now and I will spark some discussion on Twitter about this. So listeners, please do tweet us and let us know what you think about this. Tom Heaton is not getting straight back into this side when he's fit. I do not see how Dyche can drop Nick Pope. I, I just, I, th- I think it would be a wrong decision as well. I think Heaton's going to, he's going to have to wait. And I never, ever thought I would hear myself say that. And when Heaton first got injured at the early start of the season, we were literally looking at potential relegation problems, you know, with losing so many of our defence and Pope's just come in and, and in some aspects of his game, I think he's better than Heaton. Um, so that's my prediction. And I, uh, listeners, I want us, I want you to, um, to tweet us about this and, and, and have some debate. Um, one thing that frustrated me a little bit about the game but hey-ho, what can you do about it? Is that, you know, Pope makes an absolutely fantastic save, um, gets his face on the line to, to stop that that chance going in. And all the headlines are, oh, how does he miss that? How does he miss that? He should have scored it. You put one of the big keepers in that very same position, which we have seen this season, and the headlines are, oh, Nick Pope makes an incredible save with his face. It's like, no, you know, that the headlines were skewered to say, how does he miss? You know, and Pope just hasn't got the credit he deserves from that. I agree with you, James. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. With the exception of one or two moments, I think he has been consistent and outstanding since he took over um, that Palace game. And yeah, I reiterate, this week's debate is Tom Heaton's not getting back in this side straight away. No, I could put it agree. There's no way I think you can drop him at the moment. Though in a few recent games, he almost, I think, opened the door back up to, to being dropped on the performance of his kicking. I think we, we mentioned it after the Stoke game, and I think a lot of that was down to the weather conditions. But uh, we didn't touch on it when we talked about Spurs, but I thought his kicking against Spurs was absolutely atrocious. Um, but it, so it's good to see that Man United was back to normal and he, he's a pretty reliable uh, keeper off the deck maybe not quite as good uh, with his feet as Tom Heaton is but I think he, he bounced back against Man United and, and put his kicking right which is obviously good to see um, so just to talk about the, the media in Burnley then I think up until this point in the season there's been uh, as you said maybe a little bit of a love in a lot of positive uh, news pieces being written about you know what Dash has done Um how we've got it but over the, the last week or so there's been a couple that annoyed me uh, there was one from a guy who actually honestly can't remember his name now writes in the Times which is a newspaper I buy every day um, but he's basically said that the, the premise of the article was good that Dash is a great example that teams need to give managers time to, to get great results out of them but the way he wrote it was one of the worst pieces I've seen this season um, he basically implied that to get to this point, we've had five years of absolute dross. I uh, refer to it as a slog uh, under Daesh, which to me is completely disrespectful to, to what Daesh has done at the club. And I assume he hasn't really watched Burnley until this season. Because if you look at what we've done every year since Daesh has come in, we've steadily got better, as he's improved the, the members of the squad. This is completely a natural progression, in my opinion. And I think the whole time Dash has been a great manager. Obviously, he's learned from things that have happened and he has made the team better on the back of that. But ultimately, it's come down to getting better players and getting players who understand the system better. Not a sudden overnight uh, change in Dash that's made him a great manager. So I've managed to vent that on the podcast now. I tweeted about it at the time. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. And to be honest, I don't even want to dignify it by mentioned his name in the podcast because I thought it was a horrific piece of lazy journalism um, and just not the kind of coverage that I want to pay for in my newspaper. Um, One of the other major national newspapers had an article in the last week as well that linked Burnley with Brexit and Britishness. Um, To me, it was an absolute load of nonsense. I've seen a lot of tweets saying the same thing. Do you think there's almost inevitably now going to be these connections where people are looking for something that's not there, that oh, all of Burnley's players are British. It's a racist thing, which I think is what the independent article was kind of trying to hint at, um, rather than just it's Dash assigned players who he thinks fit in with his dressing room. It happens to be, he's, we've got a you know, contingent of Irish players, it happens to be that most of them are white. 
But obviously there's some key players in the past that I think can you can just use to refute this sort of mild suggestion, which is obviously Andre Gray was actually key to our team for, for two seasons. Lloyd Dyer came in um, a few seasons ago and played a pretty key role uh, for Dash. Do you think that this is just people in the papers looking to write something that's a little bit different from look how great Dash is doing at Burnley? I think it's a combination of two things and I'm not going to, James and I had um, quite a long chat before we started recording this week's um, episode about how we deal with this independent article because I was struggling with basically ignoring it for the absolute rubbish that it is um, to using it, sorry, with using it um, to spark some debate and discussion. So I'm going to leave the independent article with James because I just can't give it the um, attention that it's so blatantly and desperately seeking. But for me, the the media comments like this are the, the result of two things. Number one, the general attitude and general behaviour of the the press at the moment to write sensational articles for clicks. We all know it and people still fall for it because press journalism is on the down because people aren't buying newspapers as much as they are. People are doing things online. They write articles for clicks and they write headlines for clicks because that's the only way that they can make any money. So by writing um, absolute nonsense and inflammatory pieces like the independent article they are enticing people to click on it where they get advertising revenue um it's the way that they make money and it's always going to be um the way that they write it's as simple as that um the second factor in the nonsense articles that we're seeing on burnley i don't think necessarily are a backlash against burnley or trying to find something different i think there is a huge problem in the national press in that people haven't paid that much attention to Burnley over the last few seasons. They know we've been flirting up and down with the Premier League. We've been up uh, up three times. Now, this is our fourth season in the Premier League. We've been you know, up and down from, from the Championship. They didn't really pay us any attention because they didn't expect us to be around very long. We thought that we'd have our five minutes of fame and then we'd just scuttle back to the Championship and just be um, a Northern Towns passionate football club that stays in the Football League for the, for the rest of its time. So nobody bothered. And we saw this in 2009. We saw this in 20. 14 and we saw this to an extent last season as well in certainly in the early stages national media and newspapers just haven't been bothered to learn about Burnley they haven't been bothered to do the research because in their minds it's wasted time they only have so much time as journalists to learn about clubs and they have they have an obligation to write about the big teams are going to be there week in week out so their time is better spent researching and learning everything they can about the teams that are going to be around for for a long time to make those accurate and well thought out pieces Suddenly Burnley have put um, you know, a blocker into all of that and we're staying around and we're actually doing really, really well. So they're now having to write pieces about Burnley because of their time in the Premier League, but they don't have the research and they don't have the knowledge about our side to be able to back up the pieces. So they, all, they have to make it up and it sounds ridiculous. They get snippets of pieces of research from um, pools, that they, pools that they share and they just make up nonsense. And I think that's one of the reasons that's sorry, that's what's resulted in the first article you mentioned, James, about Burnley having a woeful last five years. What a lot of rubbish. We've had, in my opinion, some of the best five years that certainly that I've ever watched as a claret in my time. And I think most people have as well. I think unless you know our fans who were around in the 60s um, when Burnley were flying high, this is the best period of five years that we've ever known. So it's just, it's lazy journalism. And it's, like I say, it's been bred out of two things. Number one, just a, a lack of investing into learning about Burnley and the knowledge of the club and its history. And number two, um, clicks for advertising. And I'm just, I've got no time for it. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I think... Um... Football's maybe almost suffering from its popularity, I think, a little bit, where sort of almost every, everyone wants to be a football writer. And um, maybe with the way, obviously, the, the print media is these days, it's not the most lucrative industry to go into. So I think maybe some of the better writers are, are going away and taking more corporate careers rather than maybe writing about football in a, a way that might might result in better coverage. Um I think a lot of the, the big football writers are still very good, but you, you do get a lot now who just maybe haven't got the depth of watching certain teams to, to make some of the conclusions they try to draw. Uh, and that first article as well, I thought it was some really poor use of stats. Um, I mean, anyone can just 
throw a couple of numbers into an article and put no analysis around it. Uh, it's not something I particularly want to read and I, I quite like stats, but if you're going to use them at least, you know, have a real critical analysis of them rather than just saying, oh, this is a number and this is what we expect. So oh, you can see this isn't sustainable. That's not how uh, looking at stats works. Um, yeah, so I, I think for football in general, the, the, the quality of the writing in some of the national papers has been going a little bit downhill and it'd be interesting to see if it can maybe get back on track because I think there's still a market for, for reading good quality football writing. Um, and, you know, personally, I, as I said, I buy the Times every day. I think the writing in there on cricket is fun, fantastic. You know, you've got Michael Afton, who's a absolute great writer, covers the sport really well. Um, but football, I just don't see the same, uh, you know, depth of quality in writing. And, uh it shows unless you're one of the big teams, I don't think you really get the best analysis uh, from the papers anymore. Uh, moving on from from the media, uh, just to talk quickly about the two games coming up. Obviously, we we'll have a podcast next week covering the result of these two: um, Huddersfield away and Liverpool at home. Uh, two tough games again. Um, obviously, if you were to look at one that you think we're going to get more points out of, I think you'd be looking at Huddersfield away. Though they, they seem to have had a little bit of a resurgence in the performances again. Um, I think the key thing to talk about just coming to these and the only thing we're going to talk about due to time is Natalie do you have any hopes of any of the injured players returning I think the injuries obviously are starting to stack up now and uh, it is very concerning even though we still obviously managed to get some pretty decent results with the, the lads out yeah, it, it's we are being stretched, aren't we? But you know what? We're starting to struggle right as we're coming into the transfer window, which I think we'll we'll discuss in more depth, won't we, in the next um, podcast to see what we need, depending on, on who's back and who's not back. Um, I'm not entirely sure we will. We don't know anything about Wood, do we? We've not had any announcement about whether it's a niggle, whether it's anything more serious. Um, yeah, I think it was said he could be in contention for the weekend. So he, oh, he did. back to yeah, I mean, to be honest, Wood's a difficult one. I'm not entirely convinced that Deitch will rush him back and risk him given just the current form that Ashley Barnes is in. I've never seen Ashley Barnes play as well as he is at the moment. So I think if he can at least make the bench, then that gives us some cover. But um, if, if, you know, he, he has the opportunity to, to rest him a little bit more, then I think he will. Um, we know that Wood's going to be out for a little bit longer, at least a couple more games. So we might see him for New Year's Day, but I think I, I think we're probably more likely to see him for the Cup game or maybe be um, the first league game after the cup game um, and the rest of them I think are longer term injuries aren't they so I'm very much expecting the next two games to be the same starting lineup. I don't think we're going to see any mass changes but you're right James like you know we're going to have to we're going to have to go into the January transfer window after the Liverpool game with um, a shopping list really of, of what we need to strengthen the team to, to push on for our European Yeah to be honest I think the only change I'm really expecting in the next two games is um once uh, Tarkovsky's suspension's up um, for the Liverpool game, I, f- I think he'll come back in. Obviously, with a, a wrapped-up hand, but I'm, I'm sure we'll see him back. Um, but other than that, it, it could be a little while. And to be honest, with the way the team have played against Man United, I think uh, it wouldn't be very... Depending, obviously, what happens at Huddersfield, it wouldn't be very dash to, to make too many changes, even if injured players are available again. Um, so it's the last question to end the podcast on then, Natalie. Um, obviously, the transfer market opens on uh, the 1st of January. Do you think we'll we'll have jumped in before we get a chance to record the next podcast or do you think it'll be uh, a month-long wait to see what we've managed to bring in? Um, I think it depends largely on whether they've been shopping for a replacement for Brady. I think the other positions that they have, that they feel like they want cover for, which they've not been announced yet, so we're not entirely sure what they are shopping for. Um, I think they'll be slow burners. I think we'll see that over the course of the, of the January transfer window. Um, if the club is intending to replace Brady, which I hope to goodness that they are, then I think that it, the left winger is the position that we're more likely to see a quick signing um, unless they're struggling to find the right person and, and they're having to play hardball with a with a club. But I think that's our only chance. If we're going to get an early early one, and I think it'll be left wing. No, I think that's a fair point. And obviously we've seen one deal already done. Uh, obviously won't be eligible to play against us on, uh, on New Year's days. You can't register players till the second. Um, but, you know, with, with teams already looking at deals in the build-up, maybe we have already got something... Uh, underway uh, but we'll just have to wait and see uh, obviously everyone knows Dash likes to do his business behind closed doors so I'm sure we won't really hear much until uh, signings are imminent really um, well that's all we've got time for um, just want to 
say a quick thank you to all of you listeners uh, for this year. Obviously, early in the year, we we, we came to you to, to try and raise some money to keep the podcast going. Uh, we got a response that we, we really didn't expect. It was massive, uh, and we thank you all for that. Um, and thanks for continuing to listen. Obviously, there's been a lot of changes this year with Jamie leaving us. Um, we think the podcast has been continually getting better, uh, much like Burnley on the pitch. Um, we hope you've all had a fantastic festive period, and we'll see you again in the new year. So um, have a great and safe New Year's Eve and enjoy Huddersfield and Liverpool. And hopefully we'll be talking after six points again next week. Um, That's all we've got time for. I've been James Bird and this has been the No Never Podcast. Goodbye. This time last year. He's saying after the game that, you know, he thought they were a better team. I've seen his tweet and the amount of responses from Borough fans are like, you're deluded. It is, is amazing. So I don't know whether the Gazette's now like some sort of you know, Karanka propaganda machine, but it seems like <laughs> most of their fans don't see things the same way. I'm glad I, d- I just wonder if I just wonder if that the, the, the meant that kind of rival what they manufactured before the game. It, there was a story in the Borough Press also saying that the players were aware of, of the of the rivalry and the tensions leading up to the game. And I just wonder if that helped us in any way. I think Sean Dyche has often set up his team with almost like a, a siege mentality, almost about everything against us. And we really enjoy those games where we can really battle against something. Uh, and I think if if Middlesbrough's press did sit with this, uh, a little bit of bitterness between us and built the game up, well, I would be fat did actually help us uh, live into our hands a bit. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.